3: 971 FM
2: Talk Podcast.
4: Good afternoon on a beautiful day in St. Louis. I hope everyone enjoyed their President's Day holiday. Sue, did you enjoy your holiday?
0: I totally did. Thank you. Oh, man. I'm
4: hoping that you did. Fred, did you enjoy your holiday, your day off yesterday? I did.
0: It was great. I listened to you in the morning. (laughs) I listened to part of you in the morning.
4: Uh, Fred, uh, Fred listen, he says he listened like the whole thing. What, you did. Didn't, you didn't trust me? You didn't have to do that. And he, I think he was nervous for me, maybe, because I filled in for Brian Kilmeade yesterday on the syndicated show. And I, I don't know if you heard me tell the story, Fred, but the one thing that was disadvantageous to my brain functioning, Sue, at 315 yesterday morning... There was a beeping in my in my house. I had the alarm set for like 545, right? So there's this beeping, and it sounded like it was at first I thought, um, I'm waking up, my wife's waking up. I thought it was like the, uh, the smoke detector, you know, when the battery goes yeah. down. But it was my 80, this has happened before too, is my ADT alarm, the battery backup on it oh. was going bad. So it started beeping, and we're trying to figure that out. Well, then I was pretty much up at, you know. <laughs> 345 yesterday morning. But um happy it was weird yesterday was weird just because I was done. You know, one thing people probably don't know, just to offer a little insight into the way things work, is I started doing Brian's show at eight a.m. yesterday morning Central Time here at the station. Now that hour didn't air until eleven o'clock here. Does that make sense? Yes, but no. So the the show starts on ninety-seven one at nine A.M. That hour Brian's Live, the ten hour Brian's Live usually. So I was live in the nine and the ten on this station, but then they replay the third hour. And stations do this from across the country depending mm-hmm. on when you know they pick it up. So what what changes then is like I'm gonna tell you here this afternoon that Riley Gaines is coming up in the five o'clock hour because I had Riley Gaines on the show yesterday for Brian Love and it. she was fantastic. But I couldn't I offered that as an example because on, on his show on the hour, as I start the hour, I can't say, hey, Kenny coming Wallace up. is coming up in the next hour or Senator Schmidt, because you're only to assume that people are there for the hour. It's not that big of a deal, but it's a different mindset. And It would be. You know, I, I got through it okay, and I appreciate Brian inviting me to do it. But it was weird just because I was done with everything by eleven o'clock and then I had the day I played racquetball yesterday and by six o'clock last night I'm like, Hey, what the hell am I gonna do with the rest of my day? <laughs> because I it just was odd. You it's know, usually not, you're get not used home to that six but I watched this documentary called uh What's it called? Lover, Stalker, Killer. Jane recommended it last Friday. She did. On Netflix. It's really good. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But let's start with Kansas City and what happened there today. And, Fred, I think you'll admit that some of this is just a little confusing. I think we've sorted it out. I'm real confused. So the the headline today is that two more people have been charged with murder in connection with the death of Lisa Lopez-Galvin. She was the disc jockey. Well, right, because your question would be, wait, two more people. So here's what we think happened. The juveniles that were cited last week as the people who were involved in this shooting, they were charged. Their names not released last week. Now, we don't know the specifics about the charges, but we think that these two kids were charged. Today, the prosecutor in uh, Jackson County, Jean Peters Baker is her name announced that they have charged Lindell Mays and Dominic Miller. Those are both adults. They have both been charged with second degree murder, as well as two counts of unlawful use of a weapon and armed criminal action. Here is Jean Peters Baker sort of announcing some of this. Uh,
5: Mr. Mays is being held on a $1 million bond. Now I'm going to go to the second individual uh, that we have charged. That individual is Dominic Miller. He was also charged last night uh, for his participation in the events. Uh, that occurred last week. He is an adult, and he is in custody. And again, um, this individual my office has had no prior contact with this individual either. His charges um, are the same. That is murder in the second degree, felony murder. Again the underlying felony for that felony murder is the unlawful use of a weapon. And that is an a felony carrying to a range up to a life sentence. All
4: right. So then you have the two teenagers that face gun related charges as well as resisting arrest, but not necessarily murder charges from last week. So here's the story that she told. And I think some of this we you know, the one thing I think became apparent to all of us when this happened is the audio of the gunfire was nuts. Right. It sounded like fireworks. You can even see on the video if you watch the aftermath. Even the people in the immediate uh, vicinity of this shooting, they thought it was fireworks. So some of this makes a little bit more sense when you hear what happened or what they think happened on uh, Wednesday. From
5: the evidence, it appears that defendant Mays, that's the first person I I read off charges on, defendant Mays was in a verbal argument with another individual. And the evidence um, does not reflect in these early moments That there was any prior history between these individuals, Mays and the individual he was in some kind of verbal dispute with. There was no connection uh, to each other, those two individuals. Now, that argument very quickly escalated to Mays drawing his firearm, a handgun. Mays fired, or Mays pulled his handgun first. Almost immediately, almost immediately, Others pulled their firearms. Defendant Miller uh, was one of those individuals. While both adults um, are charged with murder, the evidence tells us that it was Mr. Miller's firearm. Mr. Miller's firearm struck. Lisa Lopez Galvin.
4: Okay, so here's—I'm going to put a little bit more of this together. What they say is that after the shooting, this guy, Mr. Miller, was found in the center median of Pershing Road. Paramedics and law enforcement responded to the shooting, and a witness tells investigators—and this may be what we saw on the video of the tackle, because someone says that he tackled Miller because he saw him carrying a black firearm in his waistband. The witness says he heard Miller saying, I'm shot, I'm shot. So the medical personnel take this guy in a red wagon Miller to the medical tent the EMS workers found a gun with live ammunition in the uh, in the wagon where they were working on him the detectives interviewed Miller at the hospital on Friday he then admits to being armed with a Taurus G3 9mm handgun at the rally he told police that he had seen a man armed with a handgun shooting at him and so he returned fire four or five times, the court document stated. Now, you, you, Mr. Mays, if you heard the prosecutor, he was the one, Mr. Mays was the one that shot, I think, first and, and really kind of drew first. So this guy is responding to that. I don't know if that makes any difference. Uh, but they found out that the bullet that killed the disc jockey, Lopez Galvin, had been fired from Miller's weapon. Both of those guys are still in the hospital, according to reports right now. The bond set at one million dollars. And then the other thing that the prosecutor made very clear today is that they, they still want to find more shooters. They think that there were other people who were maybe shooting or that it, at the very least pulled out weapons, so they're looking for more videos. The FBI's kinda of set up a, a site where people can put videos and pictures on, et cetera. Where were the kids?
0: They're all in the same thing. We don't know. You I know, don't understand. I, I, I think any-
4: so. Yeah, I think we because we don't know a lot about what what you know was going on with the juveniles. We just don't have the answer okay. to that at this point. So I, I don't know what to tell you because we didn't we weren't given a lot of information last week. And I think the assumption was always, wait a second. And I'm going to address some of the uh, the race issues here because this became important last week. The uh, I left. I guess I would even say this after the roundtable on Friday, thinking, well, you had two shooters. They were both kids. Well, now now it seems like you got more than two shooters or at least more than two gun charges. So these guys are the guys that were primarily responsible for the gunfire. Whatever happened with the kids, I don't know. Now, Mayor Q says this over in Kansas City in the immediate aftermath because Governor Parson says something about these thugs. I I have
1: respect for the governor. Uh, We get along well. I I disagree strongly with Uh, how he would describe that situation. I certainly do think this was criminal activity. It was lawlessness. But thugs is a dog whistle in the most classic sense. And I have seen this dog whistle time and again. There's this kind of giant conservative theory on social media now that the reason Monk shots haven't been shown is because the purported defendants are black. And if it were a white defendant, we would have just shown them.
4: Well, let me uh, explain something to the listeners. Um, If it was a white defendant, believe me, we would have heard about it. It'd been nonstop white supremacy, especially if the guy was connected to anything related to Donald Trump. But in this particular case, the race of these suspects is being protected. And by the way, it's being protected even up until this afternoon. This was an interesting moment with Ann Coulter on Bill Marshall over the weekend. I mean,
2: we don't know who did this shooting, by the way. The, the, the Super Bowl. Shoot.
5: We have we, some idea. What if it were a white man shooting? We'd know.
2: It, well, we don't know. But they, I mean, they that's how
5: we know it's not a white man. I can tell you that much.
4: You know, Bill seems stunned by this. I, you know, and he's usually a little sharper than that. I think. Do I You think they
2: were repressing that reporting?
5: They wouldn't tell us about the um, transgender woman that shot up the Christian school for what? Like a year. Um Oh, San Bernardino out here. Remember the crazy terrorist Muslims? That's when I first noticed, hmm, they're not telling us who it is. It's not a white male. The longer they go without telling you, it's not a white male.
2: Okay, well, we don't we, for this one for right now, as of Friday night, February sixteenth, we, we don't we don't officially know. okay, you know you have special powers.
4: Um, well, it's not special powers. It's just kind of putting things together. So now I think what we know is that we don't have only two African American suspects who were under the age of eighteen, but we probably have four or more. And yes, they were thugs. Governor Parson called it accurately. I don't know what's up with. Uh, the mayor of Kansas City, and I don't even know why, you know, I guess it's the, the the history of the word and everything. I hear that term thugs being used in association with Russians, you know, and everybody. So... Whatever Mayor Q wants to do, play the stupid games. I think most importantly, these people need to be charged with the appropriate crimes and brought to justice. Now, in in the aftermath of this, you have a bunch of boneheads out there trying to do stupid stuff in the legislature. And I guess this really really shouldn't surprise anyone at this point. But you have a Democrat in uh, in Jeff City that is now introducing a bill, and this is the nanny state. Now, I, I will say this: every once in a while, people and even Republicans do this; they introduce bills. Just to introduce them and to draw attention, and they don't think that they would have any, you know, practical application anyway. But there's a guy from Grandview. I don't know. Does anyone know where Grandview nope. is? Democrat Anthony Ely, who um, wants to make it illegal to carry a gun at a parade. Well, let's let's just list off the laws that these kids, adults, whatever they are, the the ages are ranging now from whatever into adulthood. How many laws did they break that we already have on the books? Oh, i many, say lots of them, right? So they, uh, Ely's bill is a direct response to the mass shooting. Well, was that a mass shooting? That's another thing. Was that the definition? I think it is technically according to the FBI statistics because of how many people were shot. But it's, it's not necessarily, you know, in the traditional sense what we would consider a mass shooting. But according to the definitions, and this is why, by the way, some of us point out every once in a while these stats on mass shootings are so, you know— Bent in, in different directions because you could have gangbangers in North St. Louis, which, by the way, you have all the time, shooting people up. Well, that's a mass shooting. That goes into the stats as a mass shooting. The bill defines a parade zone, Sue, as anywhere within one mile of the parade route during parade hours. Well, additionally, here's my favorite part of this bill. Uh, additionally, it would require entry to a parade zone through security checkpoints. Okay. Exactly. I mean, what the hell? Now again, are they doing that just to? Um, oh yeah, you know. And then of course, there's an exception for law enforcement. The whole thing is just utterly ridiculous. How about we just get into some um, questions about parenting and and what the hell these kids? By the way, the kids that were there. You know, I know a lot of kids skip school to go to that parade. I skipped school in 1982 to go to the World Series parade. How many of those kids that skip school are actually going to school on a regular basis anyway? And are at school the next day or the day after that or the day before? I think that would be a legitimate question here for Mayor Q and his dog whistles. 320-971-FM-TALK. Yesterday when I was filled in for Kilmeade, I highlighted a really interesting piece from Peter Berkowitz at the Hoover Institution on the nonsense that went on at Harvard. It was very revealing. Mr. Berkowitz is going to join us next Sue, I have the craziest story to share here in the next segment. There's a woman. Some people might have heard about this a little bit. Her name is Charlotte Cowles. She's a financial columnist, of all things. Wow. And she let herself get scammed out of $50,000 in oh. cash. And the details of this... Over the phone? Oh, no. It, it is, its It's got to be one of the most sophisticated oh. fishing expeditions that I've ever heard of. When you hear the details, because oh, just I hearing the headlines, write. when I heard about this this morning, I'm like, well, she must be the dumbest person on the planet. And she might be still, but when you hear I the details, it. I think that you will be shocked. So wow. we'll get into okay. that here in just a minute. Dave Strom from HotAir.com in the next hour. I had a great interview. I don't usually typically do this, but we had Riley Gaines on Kilmeade's show yesterday when I hosted. She was fantastic. Truth be told, we've had a little challenge getting her on the local talk shows, (laughs) but she was great, and she's got a book out that I was unfamiliar with, which is called Happy No Snakes Day. She talks about that. She was just in St. Louis and in Branson, so Riley will join us at 507. Taylor Burks will be here in the 5 o'clock hour. Naval Reserve Officer, good resume, former Boone County clerk, is jumping into that race in the 3rd District Congressional Seat that Blaine Lukemeyer is um, is leaving. You know, when I did Brian's show yesterday, I talked about this uh, column that Peter Berkowitz wrote, that was in Real Clear, and I thought it was very, very revealing. We went one better here this afternoon. Peter Berkowitz, who is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, is with us this afternoon to talk about what he wrote about Harvard. Peter, how are you? Welcome back to 97.1 FM Talk.
0: It's good to be with you. Thank you.
4: I found this fascinating. I really did, because what you did is you kind of highlighted this guy named Harry Lewis. (laughs) I want you to explain who Harry is. He published a column that really went into great detail about how some of this stuff at Harvard has occurred. And it's not really Claudine Gay's fault, is it?
0: Well, uh, Harry Lewis claims it's not really Claudine Gay's fault, and he's got a point. And of course, his testimony is worth something because he's been at Harvard for fifty years. He was—he's a class of '68 uh, at Harvard. He served as uh, as dean of Harvard College, I think, from the mid 90s to the early 2000s. And he's a longtime professor of computer science. Uh, so when uh, Harry Lewis writes, on the one hand, the outburst of anti-Semitism is not Claudine Gay's fault, but on the other hand, uh, the outburst of of anti-Semitism is Harvard University's fault because of its curriculum and because of the way professors teach it. You sit up and take notice.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when people hear. Some- some of the details here of what Mr. Lewis did. It was a real simple experiment and exercise. I think we can also apply this to other universities of the elite nature like Harvard. I don't know, maybe Wash U here in St. Louis, and I could think of a few others. But explain to the audience what Mr. Lewis did. It was kind of simple,
0: right? It was it was very simple, and uh, yes, I suspect you'd get similar results at WashU. Uh, all he did was go to the online course catalog for Harvard University. By the way, at typical, typically at universities, you need a user ID and password to gain access to these course catalogs for some reason. In any case, he had a user ID and password, and he typed in um, words and terms that are uh, – uh, Part of fashionable left-wing ideology, terms like decolonize, oppression, liberation, white supremacy, intersectionality. And needless to say, he found abundant references to all of them. For, and, for example, he couldn't find any reference to intersectionality before the year uh, uh, uh 2000 in other words he found what we would imagine that harvard's curriculum is overrun with fashionable left wing uh, assumptions arguments, claims, and contentions.
4: Yeah, so like Decolonize, just in and of itself, he found, is in the titles of seven courses and 18 more, and that's triple what it was before 2000. So there's a padding pattern here with some of these words and the description of the courses, which is maybe not too surprising, but that's sort of his point. His point is is that this stuff has kind of taken over academia
0: uh th- that's right uh, on the one hand the um the subjects or classes built around the stories of decolonization deco- and decolonization of course colonization means what countries like the United States and Israel do decolonization is what is demanded by um uh, by the university's uh, left-wing critics, but it's not only the, uh, the substance of the courses, it's also the manner in which the courses are taught that, uh, that Lewis, a former dean at Harvard and still computer science professor, criticizes, and he makes um, the crucial point that these courses are taught in such a way as to exclude dissenting opinion, which is a disaster for anything that wants to legitimately call itself education.
4: So his remedy for this is here's where I have a disconnect, Peter, because I'd love for there to be a realistic path to maybe turn some of the stuff around. And I went to college in the early 80s. Remember, my professors that, you know, were, were barking about Ronald Reagan in courses that had nothing to do with politics. And I can only imagine how much on steroids. This has gotten gotten you know in four decades, but in you know, the genie's out of the bottle. I don't know how you can turn this around and what you could do. He talks about maybe having a little bit of affirmative action for conservative, you know, professors. Do we have any conservative professors in this country? Maybe one or two.
0: Uh, well, we have we have very few, and uh, and in my my own view is that uh, conservative uh, affirmative action conser- for conservative professors actually would just. Actually, make things worse because it would it would give the the university administrators even even more authority to look into people's uh, voting patterns. University administrators shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. If there's a way out, I think uh, it's this. First of all, you will need uh, brave uh, university presidents and provosts and deans. And second, you will need to focus actually on subject matter. So, for example, um, most universities lack. Um, serious courses on America's founding principles, on America's constitutional traditions, on war, on religion, on the great ideas that define Western civilization, on um, uh, political institutions, the great events, and so on. And these days, it's disproportionately conservatives who study um, the great ideas, the landmark events, and the leading institutions of the West. So we need brave, brave educators who demand that the curriculum be revolve around these matters. And if you can find professors to teach those courses, chances are pretty good that those professors are going to have conservative, uh, conservative convictions.
4: You know, it's interesting here that you highlight in in, when you wrote about this, Peter, you highlighted one of the courses in the 24 spring semester. And it's called Ignorance, Lies, Hogwash and Humbug, which deals (laughs) with fake news. Here's what I'd love to know. I I think that's an interesting course. I wonder rhetorically, I wonder if in that course they're going to teach about (laughs) the things that happened with the Covington Catholic kids and Brett Kavanaugh and Kyle Rittenhouse and the list goes on and on and on. I'm guessing no, they won't cover those types of issues in that course.
0: Uh, I'm guessing that you are correct. Um, But, of course, it's even worse than that. That single course... Is uh, w- is enough to qualify a uh, a Harvard student for the for the um, for the requirement in ethics and civics? That one single course. So, in other words, uh, even if you studied about, also about the Covington kids and about Brett Kavanaugh, you could pass your ethics and civics requirement without ever having studied America's founding principles and constitutional traditions. I don't think a self-respecting educational institution. Um, uh, should allow that.
4: And, and remind us, that course is offered at a community college, right? No, that's Harvard <laughs> University. It's Harvard that University, Harvard right?
0: University. Unbelievable. Yes. Wow.
4: Peter Berkowitz, thank you for highlighting this. Fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on here this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. 3.35, a crazy, crazy story. I think I've even allowed myself enough time. I told Fred I might need hours to tell this story. You'll be blown away. I'm telling you, I'm not underselling I'm this one. In. It's coming up. So, you know, we spring forward in two weeks. No! Two, two and a half weeks. It's two weeks from this Sunday, so I guess I'm being a little generous with the rounding up. Yeah, but I'll take it. I know. I noticed last night, just being off because we didn't have to work in the afternoon, it was much lighter than I expected. I know we sit oh. here every day and we look out the window, but, I know, but it's... it's a good feeling. It's a beautiful day. So, this is a, a crazy story, and I hope I gave myself, gave myself enough time to uh, to do it. I saw this story yesterday, and I didn't read it, and I thought, well, this person has to be a big idiot because the headline is, and it's from a, a website called thecut.com, okay? And after you hear everything, it would not be out of bounds to think to yourself, this whole thing is just made up. It's so crazy. They're just trying to get attention for thecut.com. That's how nuts this is, right? So the headline is, the day I put $50,000 in a shoebox and handed it to a stranger, I never thought I was the kind of person to fall for a scam. Charlotte Cowles is her name. She is the financial advice columnist for thecut.com. Okay, and she is not old i just looked her up no 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 the details now i'm going to share this story for a couple of different reasons one it's crazy entertaining two if and i think this is charlotte's point if charlotte can fall for something like this anybody anybody can and i will say this that i've been getting more and more you know text messages Mm -hmm. emails and calls that seem suspicious and you know my radar goes up however Just listen to the details. So she goes, on a Tuesday evening this past October, I put $50,000 in cash in a shoebox, taped it shut as instructed, carried it to the sidewalk in front of my apartment. My phone clasped to my ear. Don't let anyone hurt me, I told the man on the line, feeling pathetic. You won't be hurt. Just keep doing exactly as I say. And then she tells the story about how a white Mercedes pulled to the curb. The man on the phone said, do not look at the driver. Um, They knew her address, social security number, the name of her family members, that her two-year-old son was playing in the living room. He said that the home was being watched. The laptop had been hacked and they were in imminent danger. Holy cow. So she admits very early in the column. Now, I know this is all a scam now, a cruel and violating one, but painfully obvious in retrospect. She admits that, that when you hear the details here, you're going to say, wait a second. How could you have ever have fallen for this? Here's. What I can't figure out, she writes, why didn't I just hang up and call 911? Why didn't I text my husband or my brother, who's a lawyer, or my best friend, also a lawyer, or my parents, or one of the many other people who would have helped me? Why did I hand over all that money? $50,000, right? Wow. The content of her savings account, strictly for emergencies, without a bigger fight. So people. she admitted that people say, you don't seem like the type of person this would happen to. And she says what they mean is I'm not senile, hysterical, or a rube, but these stereotypes are actually false. Younger adults, Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, 34% more likely to report losing money to fraud compared with those over 60. That's shocking. I did not know that. So that was um, Halloween, October 31st. She dressed Her toddler in a pizza costume for Halloween kissed him goodbye before school. She wrote some emails at 1230 in the afternoon. Now, some of this is framed around Halloween trick-or-treatings that night, right? She's worried about her son. The phone rings. The caller ID said it was Amazon, okay? She answered, there was a woman with a vague accent that told me she was calling from an Amazon customer service account to check some unusual activity. The call was being recorded for quality purposes. Had I recently spent $8,000 on MacBooks and iPads? I had not. I checked my Amazon account. My order history showed diapers and groceries, no iPads. The woman said her name was Krista, told me the purchases had been made under my business account. She goes, I don't have a business account. So they both talk about this. They agree that she's the victim of identity theft. And she says, I'm going to flag the fraudulent accounts. I'm going to freeze their activity. She gives um, Charlotte a case ID number. Wait a minute. This woman didn't even have a business account, so she's already fallen for that, right? She said, nope, I don't have a business account, yet this woman keeps going, and she's like, oh, okay. That's a good point. It gets crazier. Then Krista explains that Amazon had been having a lot of problems with identity theft and false accounts. It had become so pervasive that the company was working with a liaison at the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and was referring defrauded customers to him. Could she connect me? Now, I want you to think of two things here, wow. Sue. I know that your brain is going to go to how is Charlotte so naive, right? How is Charlotte so gullible? But what I want you to focus on a little bit here is how sophisticated yes. this was when you hear the details. And now Charlotte thinks she's helping, right, by getting yeah. transferred yeah. to this. So that's another factor. So Krista transferred the call to uh, a guy that says i'm calvin mitchell he says i'm an investigator with the ftc gives a badge number right oh my god uh writes down his direct phone line in case i needed to contact him again says that the call is being recorded asked me to verify my name and then he gives the last four digits of her social her home address date of birth to confirm that they were correct she says and you know i can see this the fact that he had my social security number through me i was getting nervous so calvin says i'm glad we're speaking your information is linked to a case that we've been working on for a while now and it's quite serious he says that 22 bank accounts nine vehicles four properties were registered to my name the bank accounts had wired more than three million dollars overseas mostly to jamaica and iraq did i know anything about this no Do I know someone named Stella Suki Kwong? I don't think so. He texted me a photo of her ID, claimed that it had been found in a car rented under my name. None of this has happened, right? He uh, he says that, well, authorities found drugs, bank statements registered to her name, Social Security. He texts a drug bust photo of bags of pills and money stacked on a table and says there are warrants out for her arrest in Maryland and Texas and that she's being charged with cyber crimes, money laundering and drug trafficking. So- She says, my head swam. I Googled my name along with warrant and money laundering, but nothing came up. Uh Right. She says, I'm in deep blank. That's what she texts to her husband. My identity was stolen. It seems really bad. So then back to Calvin. Calvin wanted to know if anyone I knew or um, anything like that has connections to Iraq or Jamaica. She says, no. Right. Right. have you ever used public or unsecured Wi-Fi? She says, I don't know, maybe. I used the airport Wi-Fi recently. Remember, that's a real thing. Yeah. That is a real yes, thing. Yes, it is. Okay, so you can go to the airport. If you plug your stuff in you know, for charging, they can get your information potentially. We've talked to, uh, to George about that here uh, on the air. So well, he says that's unfortunate. That's how many of these breaches start. Jeez. Calvin says, listen carefully. The first thing you must do is don't tell anyone what's going on. Everyone around you is a suspect. She says, I almost laughed. I told him I was quite sure my husband, who works for an affordable housing nonprofit and makes meticulous spreadsheets for our childcare expenses, was not a secret drug smuggler. I believe you. But even so, your communications are probably under surveillance. You cannot talk to him about this. So she deletes the text oh messages my. that she even sent from a few minutes earlier. So she says I felt suspended between two worlds, the one I knew and the one this man was describing. If I had nothing to do with any of these allegations, how much could they truly affect me? So this goes on and on and on. And the guy says, well, how much money do you have in your bank account? She goes, I got two bank accounts, checking and savings. My balance is a little over $80,000. Now, what she says here is. She's a freelance worker in a volatile industry. She kept a big emergency fund and then she also set cash aside for taxes at the end of the year because mm. they aren't withheld, which makes sense. And that's a fair amount of money to have yeah, in two bank is. accounts, especially when interest rates are paying you probably more than your, your savings account, but whatever. We'll we'll deal with Charlotte's, you know, strategy for saving money later. So then the Calvin says, You must have worked very hard to save all that money. Do not share your bank account information with anyone. I'm going to help you keep your money safe. He says, I'm going to transfer you to my colleague at the CIA, who's the lead investigator on the case, and uh, they're going to give you a nine-digit case number. And the CIA agent's going to tell you what to do CIA next.
0: wouldn't have anything to do well, with
4: Well, but it did. Oh, no. Just because they said it did. Oh. So Charlotte says, if it was a scam, I couldn't see the angle. It had occurred to me that the whole story might be made up or an elaborate mistake, but no one had asked me for money or told me to buy crypto. They'd only encouraged me to not share my banking information. They hadn't asked for my personal details. They already knew them. I hadn't been told to click on anything. So that's, that's relatively interesting. She says she checked your bank accounts, credit cards, credit score. Nothing looked out of the ordinary, right? So this thing goes on. There's another guy that gets on the line. He's got a British accent, and he says his name is Michael Serrano. He worked for the CIA involving the FTC. Gives a badge number. She says, I'm going to need more than that. I have no reason to believe that any of what you're saying is real. He says, I understand. He told me to go to the FTC homepage, look up the main phone number. Now hang up the phone, and I will call you from that number right now. I did as he said. The FTC number flashed on my screen. I picked it up. How do I know you're not just spoofing this, I asked. It's a government yeah. number. It cannot be spoofed. Oh, <laughs> Apparently it can not be, right? Um, I admitted that I had texted my husband. You must reassure him that everything is fine. In many cases like this, we have to investigate the spouse as well. The less he knows, the less he's implicated. From now on, you have to file protocol if you want us to help you.
5: Oh, my God. I don't gosh. think I should
4: lie to my husband, I said. I'm feeling stupid. He goes, you're being investigated for major federal crimes. Well, By keeping your husband out of this, you're protecting him. Look, they had wow. an answer, Sue. They had an this answer for everything. Now, nuts. think about this. I'm, tra- I'm not trying to let her completely off the hook, but her mind is just swimming, right? So the the stories then are consistent with what the other guy says. This goes on and on and on. The CIA says, i got to freeze your assets, right? But here's the deal. How, how long do you need— Uh, How much money do you need to support yourself? Right. The guy says, well, there could be a trial. You might need to testify. And he convinces her to go to the bank, get the money out. Don't tell them what it's for. You know, he says in one case, the identity thief was someone who worked at the bank. That's what he tells her. So. She keeps them on speaker the whole time she oh goes to the bank. The, the person at the bank, so she asks the teller for 50 grand. The woman behind the window raises her eyebrows, disappears, comes back with a large metal box of $100 bills, counts them out with a machine. Then she pushes the bills through a slot, and there's a sheet of paper that warns against scams. I thanked her and left. By the way, I didn't think it was even possible to go. I don't have $50,000 in my account, but I didn't even think you could go and withdraw that much you could in cash in just one day. So this goes on and on, and she ends up putting this money in front of her house. Somebody comes by, grabs the $50,000. and She's never it? seen it again, Sue. So oh, the money is gone. Is now, she was. you have some questions. I'm yeah, going to let her I answer did. some of the questions, okay. right? So why didn't you ask for help? Here she is on CNN.
5: You're married. You had a family. Can you talk about that instinct to not reach out for help? Absolutely. There's actually a name for this. It's called Blocking the Exits. And um, and it, it's a, a really effective manipulation tactic. And, Where they um, make it seem like you can't contact this yeah, person, don't. don't. you're under surveillance, you're being watched, your phone is tapped, your computer's been hacked. They really make it seem like you have nowhere to turn. Um, in this particular instance, I was also home by myself. I was working from home. Um, and so under any other circumstances, of course, I mean... My best friend is a lawyer. Like I I have I have an incredible support system around me and they really made me feel like I couldn't talk to anyone. Crazy.
4: Now I'm going to have to just kind of assume that this story is true. It's so crazy that I'm almost, like I said at the beginning here, thinking, wait a second, this is so nuts. Maybe she just made the whole thing up, and she just wanted attention for her column in the cut. Now, I don't know if there's a way to prove any of this, but it is a nutty story, isn't it?
0: Well, it is, and here's the thing. If you were being investigated, they would
4: not call you through Amazon. No, Okay, that was flag number one. People In the aftermath of this, people told all of this stuff she was told, but that was after she gave the money.
5: Right, Uh, and it's a good warning because you're right, it is sophisticated. The other thing is, if you were being investigated, the first thing you'd do is say, I'm going to hang up and call my lawyer. She says, if I had
4: to pinpoint a moment that made me think my scammers were legitimate, it was probably when they read me my social security number. Now, she says that they only gave her the last four, right? Well, then
5: that's not the whole—yeah.
4: So um, she goes— It was my brother, the lawyer, who pointed out that what I had experienced sounded a lot like a coerced confession. I read through transcripts of bad interrogations in law school to understand that anyone can be convinced that they have a very narrow set of terrible options. So uh, it's a psychological thing that happened. But how crazy— is that now? That's fifty thousand dollars she and, lost. For and this what thing. was that supposed to do? It, the fifty grand was supposed to buy her out of something. No, or, it or, was essentially they were saying that you're being charged with money laundering. You have to give the $50,000. We're going to keep that money safe for you. If you don't give us the $50,000, oh. you're not going to be able to live because all of your accounts are... are going to be um, hacked. Yeah. Oh, so genius they, and, and here's what genius. They, they went a little further than that. They said that what they would do is, I forgot this detail, is that we're going to give you 50, or you're going to give us $50,000. We're going to then turn around and cut you a check from the United States Treasury for $50,000. That a hard copy of the check would be deliver to her the next morning and then she would also have to have a, a, an appointment at the social security office because she had to get a new social security number. I mean, I'm telling you, these people, think about the sophistication, all the people, they had phone numbers, the trickery Jeez. and you know, you. how many times did they do this to people, right? I can't imagine. I don't know, a couple, few hundred, oh, thousand that's but you get awful. a couple people, $50,000 pretty good payday for a scammer crazy, be careful out there.